Hi, welcome to Neuroverse, a podcast hosted by Carolina and Clara, where we discuss all matters from neuroscience to philosophy and beyond. Today's episode is on enzyme-directed evolution. Woo! <laughs> yes, I always feel like there should be a little applause yeah. at that point. <laughs> <laughs> to start off with, I will first just talk a little bit about enzymes, which I think is re- are really cool. Given my degree was in biochemistry, I studied them a lot. <laughs> um, so enzymes are biological catalysts. Uh, they are proteins, which are made up of amino acids, and they help speed up reactions by lowering the energy it takes for a reaction to occur. Enzymes are everywhere in the biological world. An example that is close to us is, for example, when we digest food, our enzymes break down the food. And if we look at other species, this also happens, for example, with mushrooms, except they they digest food externally. So they release enzymes to break down organic matter and then absorb the nutrients. But enzymes also do several other things. It's not just about breaking down food. They are also present with DNA transcription and translation, as well as um, like uh, viral encoding. Yeah, basically all biological processes pretty much require enzymes. Yes, exactly. The structure of the enzyme is very important for their function. This is because um, they have an active site, which is where the reactions happen. And they either have amino acids which are hydrophobic or hydrophilic. And and this allows for other molecules to bind and react and assemble or break down. And just to emphasize the importance of structure (laughs) in biology, I want to do a little side take and talk a little bit about chaperones. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so chaperones are these proteins in our body which help assemble other proteins. Mm-hmm. So they'll take a protein that is like uncoiled, that is like in its in its first in its primary structure mm-hmm. and help fold it up. And it does it's so cool. It's like this little I don't know, encasing where the protein filters its way in and then because of the hydrophilic or hydrophobic amino acids inside, it then slowly bends the protein into shape. Mm-hmm. And then once it's folded, it releases it. And so do you know if the same type of chaperone always makes the same type of proteins into the same shape? Or can it make different sh- shapes, basically? <laughs> yeah, so it depends. Some chaperones are really like protein-specific, so they'll only fold um, one specific type of protein. Other chaperones are not that specific. They'll just fold proteins in general. Mm. Um, And it's not like they think, okay, I need to fold this protein into this shape. It's more like due to the hydrophobic proteins of the chaperone and due to the hydrophilic proteins of the protein, they then like bend in, the protein then bends into the shape it's meant to be. That's so interesting. (laughs) So the the resulting shape is actually a product of the relationship between the two mm, compositions of the yeah. different proteins, the chaperone and the enzyme. It, yeah, exactly. It's so neat mm-hmm. and it's kind of simple, but it leads to so many like intricate and like thousands of different types of proteins and shapes. 
Yeah, that's what I find most interesting. I don't know nearly as much about enzymes as you do, but (laughs) (laughs) it's the fact that enzymes are made of thousands of amino acids, Mm -hmm. but there are only 20 types of amino acids. Yeah. And with that combinatorial type mechanism, you can just create so many different types of enzymes that catalyze all these different types of reactions. Yes, it's incredible it's responsible for the diversity that we have in the biological world. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. diversity is so important in the biological world. Yeah. Um, okay. So um, staying within the structure, mm-hmm. there's a couple of ways to figure out what the enzyme structure is. In biology, we can use techniques such as NMR and crystallography, um, which allow us to visualize um, the protein shape. Mm-hmm. However, the issue with this is that sometimes you'll get an average of the shape because it takes like snapshots. So it's not the most accurate. Because the shape changes. Um, because depending on what angle you look at the protein, you may see something slightly different. Right, because it's so complex. Yeah, and like it's it's 3D, so yeah. like it expands in several different ways. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And then another thing you can do is have a computational approach. So using, you know, all that we know about the structure of amino acids, the bonds, the angle of the bonds it makes, its hydrophobic properties, we can create, we can model what we think the structure should be. And uh, these techniques, uh, so uh, they used to have a rate of around, uh, an accuracy rate of 40%, which is very, very low. Yeah. So if we want to, like, pick on these enzymes and develop them further, it, uh, it would be, like, you know, it would just be guesswork. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so then AlphaFold came into yes, the picture. I was thinking about that because <laughs> I only recently read about this. And yeah. didn't they increase the success rate to like 80% for the first time? Exactly. Yeah. So in 2016, they managed to increase the accuracy rate to 60% and then 2020 to over 80%, which yeah. is double in like four years. What I found really interesting about this, which is a bit of a side um, ta- a bit of a tangent but mm-hmm. the reason they were able to do this is because they were trying to win a competition oh yeah because <laughs> there was like a competition for how accurate you can um, estimate protein structure mm-hmm. and they won and yeah. that's how they got to so yeah that's just so a little amazing. tangent of how competitions drive science sometimes yes <laughs> <laughs> so this is great because okay now that we have a much more accurate picture of enzymes mm-hmm. we can then properly like play around with them um, enzyme mutation and evolution and us tinkering with enzymes has always been happening but now is like the best time because now <laughs> we have the most accurate picture of them yeah and so um, into this comes Francis H. Arnold mm-hmm. which won uh, a Nobel Prize um, in 2018 I believe yes <laughs> exactly and she wanted to build new enzymes, which is now what I'm going to talk about, enzyme-directed evolution. Mm-hmm. So nature is incredibly abundant. And like we talked about, um, these 20 amino acids, they lead to such incredible variety. Um, but we still have problems that we want to solve and we still have reactions that we want to improve and so why not why do we limit ourselves to just the biological world we could also um there's countless of other enzymes in the periodic table why not play around with them and see what we can get out of them and so 
this is what enzyme directed evolution is. It's when you take an enzyme and you want to optimize it to do the reaction that you want it to do. So you mutate it and then from those mutations, see what works best and then over generations achieve the optimal enzyme. Mm -hmm. I think the coolest thing about this is that it takes advantage of random mutations mm -hmm. or mutagenesis because as far as I understand, like you were discussing earlier, you can um, computationally design proteins, Yeah. but often this is limited in mm -hmm. that it just doesn't serve the purpose that you want it to serve because yeah. it's not. we're still not able to predict the function of something directly from the structure. Yeah. Even though there's yeah. a really like high correlation, you know, in practice, it's it's different. <laughs> and so it seems like the best way to do so is enzyme-directed evolution, which is basically letting nature do its thing, mm -hmm. but sort of guiding it. Exactly. Yeah. Like <laughs> we take nature and like we amplify it. We yeah. ramp it up. <laughs> and and the, the interesting thing is we don't really know what's happening. Yeah. We just because it's based on like the functional output. Mm -hmm. So once you, it gets to a stage where this enzyme serves the function you're trying to make it serve, yeah. then then we're happy. Yeah. But like whatever's happening between, I guess we don't know the fine, fine, fine details. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Sometimes scientists have, you know, because you change one single amino acid, you change one single uh, functional group and it can lead to several different um, outcomes. And so sometimes uh, scientists would just do one mutation at a time but this takes billions of years if you want to you know yeah um if you wanted to go through every single mutation if you wanted to try every single option but nature doesn't do that nature just adapts on the spot um a good enzyme uh, a good <laughs> a good example <laughs> is um, all enzymes are good no, yes <laughs> maybe not all enzymes are good though <laughs> i don't know um is We've thrown like herbicides on fields, yeah, and uh, this caused this environmental pressure caused nature to come up with an enzyme atrazine uh, degradation, which dechlorinated atrazine. So, um, and this is evolution in real time, mm -hmm. which is incredible. So nature doesn't do one mutation at a time. It doesn't wait billions of years. It just comes up with a solution. So why not? take advantage of this why not use the enzymes already out there and just tinker with them and and quote-unquote evolve them to do what we want them to do mm -hmm. um yeah but i think an interesting thing is the fact that uh well it's obvious now that not and not all enzymes that we need for our human purposes have been created by nature's process of evolution mm -hmm. and so for example, I think enzyme-directed evolution nowadays is used mainly to come up with um, sustainable solutions of yeah. how to break down compounds like plastics, yeah. and these sort of these sorts of problems haven't yet been overcome by nature. Yeah. And this is why we need enzyme-directed evolution. Yeah, especially if we want a faster approach. Over time, yeah. nature may come up with a solution, mm -hmm. but it could take years. Evolution can take years. Yeah. And we, we found a way to like speed up the process. Um, so essentially, enzyme-directed evolution is when you have an enzyme that is really good at doing a specific job, but in that enzyme, you find an area called uh, a promiscuous region 
where you are then able to um, direct it and optimize it to do a different task. So mm. it's it's a small area that does have some capability of doing the task that you want it to do. And in the beginning, it's going to be really bad at doing that job. But over time, it, you can optimize it. Yeah, it's all about optimization. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. a little bit like us humans. So for example, you know, we're doing a degree in neuroscience. We want to become neuroscientists mm-hmm. and so <laughs> yes, on. Yes, we do. <laughs> but in a different environmental circumstance, perhaps we would have been artists mm-hmm. or engineers Mm-hmm. or something else and so that's a little bit what this is it's the same enzyme mm. but in a different uh, context in a different with a different pressure you mm-hmm. can get it to do different things right and um yeah francis Al- arnold showed this so incredibly well with her research um where she she works with cytochrome c a lot uh do you want to just explain what that is yeah, so cytochrome C is um, a mitochondrial protein, mm-hmm. and she was able to quote unquote convince it <laughs> to create um, a reactive intermediate with to carbon to carbene, which is something that doesn't happen naturally. Mm-hmm. And then she was also able to convince uh, a heme protein to involve, and uh, and then Kai, who works with Francis Arnold, also showed that he could make cyclopropane. All of these things don't happen in the natural world mm-hmm. and and they also found that they could make carbon silicon bonds which is insane again so carbon is the second most abundant element and sorry silicon is the second most abundant element and i didn't even i didn't even know that yeah <laughs> it's such an underrated element. it is what but uh, carbon and silicon, we've never seen them bond before, but they've managed to do it. So cytochrome C heme proteins um, were isolated from a bacteria found in Iceland. In the right circumstance, these iron-containing proteins were able to evolve to bond, to form carbon-silicon bonds. This is an example of how you can incorporate non-organic materials and form them uh, and cause them to form like carbon bonds which widens completely our repertoire of like our chemical toolbox exactly exactly yeah that's Um, incredible yeah this is this is what i find most incredible about enzyme directed evolution it's amazing how we can optimize enzymes but what's mind-blowing is how Francis Arnold has been able to get create carbon bonds with n- non-organic materials. Mm-hmm. It's It just opens the door completely. I, I'm just in awe of, of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so am I. And she seems like such a remarkable scientist. Yeah. My gosh. But I also read about... So Francis Arnold won the Nobel Prize... Um, together with George Smith and Gregory Winter mm-hmm. and they she was in charge of sort of coming up with enzyme directed evolution as a mechanism but George Smith and Gregory Winter they discovered how to get bacteria to make proteins um, that we want yeah and so it's really interesting because so George Smith used bacteria bacteriophages which are bacteria infecting viruses 
that and he made it so that they can make any desired protein and then the cool part is that they then stick these proteins to their outer coats mm -hmm. and then these can therefore be used um, to so by inserting for example if you want to make like an antibody in the bacteriophage and then yeah. they will display it on their coat mm -hmm. and this is valuable for um, creating therapies basically because then yeah. you can create antibodies to order to target specific proteins in for diseases like autoimmune diseases or maybe even some cancers which is incredible there's so much potential That's amazing. Yeah. so much potential <laughs> and it's yeah like you said going back to the bacteria it's also an amazing way of if you incubate it to then just create like thousands of these enzymes and yeah 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 it's a very p fast process you can yeah yeah you can amplify it yeah <laughs> and i also um what I, this this whole topic kind of just reminds me of like the human connection with nature like mm -hmm. i feel science always works best when scientists observe what happens in nature and then actually utilize it rather than you know creating a process that's totally human unnatural yeah and based on just our logic and knowledge mm -hmm. but instead we can incorporate like natural processes in yeah. this way and it reminded me of one of my all-time favorite scientists mm -hmm. who's actually a such a well she's such a polymath but she's like an engineer architect designer and her name is Neri Oxman um, she has a lab at MIT and she basically created the field of material ecology wow <laughs> yeah um, so she trained as a doctor and an architect amazing but now she's doing a lot of like her research kind of intersects engineering as well as design mm -hmm. and she her lab like creates new biosynthetic materials and um, they have project like one of their projects was creating this frame and then getting a bunch of silkworms and just putting the silkworms on this frame and it created this huge silk pavilion wow and just a lot of projects like this and every time I listen to her talks, she always says the same, she always ends with the same quote, which is like, we as humans now have a responsibility to mother nature instead of like, you know, mother nature, oh. <laughs> play on words. I love that. And I think enzyme directed evolution definitely fits with this idea of mm -hmm. like mothering nature because we're in a way controlling like natural processes, but yeah. also enabling it to have its freedom to do its thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. we've, d like you've mentioned, these human uh, developed tools in uh, especially inorganic materials and things like that. And these two worlds, inorganic and organic, used to be so separate. And, and mm -hmm. we've developed such incredible things in the inorganic world as, as chemists. And now this enzyme directed evolution, the fact that we've been able to create these bonds just completely like opens this gate yeah and and it's like you know everything is our oyster so, like yeah, we can so access the possibilities whole, yeah. yeah we can access the whole periodic table and not be limited to like four or five elements mm -hmm. which is you know what usually happens in in the organic world mm -hmm. so yeah <laughs> i i find it fascinating yeah so we hope you enjoyed this episode let us know what you think about these organic and inorganic bonds being formed and any opinions you might have on enzyme-directed evolution. We hope you enjoyed learning about enzyme-directed evolution. I know I did. Um, we'd love to hear all of your thoughts, so do contact us through our social media accounts.